Hello everyone and welcome back to another week of Podcastles. You're listening to me Nikita and my sister Georgia and this week we are moving on from Oxfordshire to the county of Berkshire. We are kicking Berkshire off with Windsor Castle. It's a big one, it's a good one. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be awesome, I love this castle. So let's kick off with the chronology, Georgia. Tell me all about Windsor Castle. So the castle started being built in 1070 which I think that makes it pretty obvious as to who... William the Conqueror. Absolutely. Our good old friend William the Conqueror built it. He uh, commissioned a lot of castles, as we know, when he first came over to England. It was put on 13 acres of land above the south bank of the Thames. It took 16 years to build, and the site that it was put on was very strategic. It was part of a group of castles placed around London to defend it. Its job was to watch the western approach to London, so anyone coming from the west towards the capital If you were at Windsor, you could see them coming, prepare, such and such. It very quickly became a popular home for the royals to actually live in because not only was it close to London, but it also was on the edge of some Saxon hunting forests. So it was good fun. (laughs) The things you do when you don't have Instagram. (laughs) Um, So Henry I, Matilda's dad from the last episode, And her son, Henry II, both made Windsor their permanent residence. And basically, I'm going to take you through a whirlwind of the kings and queens of England because pretty much every monarch was involved with this castle somehow and added their own personal stamp to it in various ways. We're not going to mention them all because some of them aren't that important additions, but it's very interesting. Firstly, mm-hmm. William the Conqueror makes it a Mott and Bailey, as is often the case in this time. And if you were to look up a picture of the grounds or you know a map of the grounds, we'll put some in the blog, hopefully, mm-hmm. you can see in the centre, you can still see the Mott and Bailey. So you can see a tower on a little hill and then the rest of the castle is now going round the outside of it. So you have the sort of more palace-looking buildings. They're all round the outside, but you still have the original tower in the middle, which is quite interesting. So Henry II, as I mentioned, he made it his permanent residence slightly later. So that was in the late 12th century. And he added some royal apartments, one that was like a public official state residence sort of style. And the other one was a much smaller private apartments that he used for himself. He also started replacing everything that was made of wood... Uh, with stone so it started really sensible solidifying it yeah Edward III in the 1350s through to 1377 when he died Mm -hmm. he spent all that time converting what was really a military castle into a gothic palace interestingly Windsor is one of the only castles that was successfully transitioned into a palace. So he spent 50,000 of contemporary money on it, um, which is the most ever that had been seen to be spent on a single castle, uh, single building even. Wow. The building work continued into Richard II's reign, so when he came to power in 1377. And this building, this version that we see of it, survives pretty much unchanged until the 17th century so building it in stone was a good call (laughs) yeah besides obviously as i've said there's like bits of modernization and little things that different kings and queens add to it new carpet yeah things like that so getting to our first key era that we tend to look at in these episodes first baron's war excellent we're skipping over matilda i'm afraid it's just not 
in this much. Sorry, <sighs> I think I think she's she's had a she's had a few hours on that. We focused on her a lot lately. So during the Barons War, it was besieged by the forces against King John. So King John was the king who had to sign the Magna Carta because he was doing all sorts of mad stuff. The lousy lion. <laughs> In Robin Hood. Yes, the lion in Robin Hood. The people against him, when he starts disobeying the laws they've set up for him in the Magna Carta, Mm -hmm. they besiege the castle. They are hoping to replace King John with Prince Louis of France, who becomes King Louis IX. The siege lasts two months and it's unsuccessful. But interestingly, only Dover and Windsor held held out from all these sieges in the southeast for the king. Oh, nice. That's pretty impressive. Besieged again later in the century, but Henry III makes the walls much thicker. He goes, you know, this needs to be sturdy if we're all going to live here. So he makes the walls 7.3 metres thick and adds sally ports and tunnels, which means like basically secret passageways so that people can escape. If they do have another siege the important people can escape, basically. I love a, love a good secret passageway. Are there any leading to pubs? Because there are some, like, residences where they have corridors that go straight to the local pubs. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see anything about that. Edward IV built St George's Chapel as a celebration of his return from exile, and that wasn't actually finished until 1528, but that is now a mausoleum, basically, which is second only to Westminster. It's got, like, ten kings and queens buried there, so... That's so cool. He is going to come up a little bit later in the ghosts and skeletons section because there's some interesting stuff related to Windsor and Edward IV. Excellent. He centred his whole court around Windsor, really. And as I say, we'll get more into that later. I didn't know that. Well, it's very, very interesting stuff. And there were also lots of medieval tournaments there. We have one in 1278 and one in 1344. Nice. Moving on to the Tudors. Mm. Again, there's not tons that they do until Elizabeth's reign. This is, again, just kind of because they did such a good job of it. Like, Edward III did a big renovation to it, and it's just the medieval king's have it set really for quite a long time Henry VIII in his very Henry VIII way decided to add a gate which has his name on it little things like that Elizabeth had to do some repairs in the 70s in the 1570s we're now in she also built a long gallery which was incorporated into the Royal Library in the 19th century oh nice Charles I, uh, he was a massive collector of art particularly and many of those are on display and were moved to Windsor Mm mm-hmm During the Civil War, I did say we're moving super fast in this, there's just a little fact on every period, basically. This is hop, hop, skip and a jump. (laughs) When Charles I is challenged and we see the Civil War arise, the parliamentarians seize the castle very quickly. They sack St George's Chapel, which I mentioned Edward IV built, Mm -hmm. um, and all the royal apartments. It's not slighted though so that's good that's nice it's actually used by Cromwell as his headquarters and as a prison for the royalists for a while so Charles I is actually kept there for a while which I thought was quite interesting oh I wonder what being a prisoner in your own home feels like yeah <laughs> um, must be so weird to be locked down in your own house in the Norman Tower you can still see the carvings from prisoners like we saw in Warwick Castle oh really that's really cool any any interesting people? Any Walt Disney's? Not that I've heard of. If you know of people that are particularly interesting, other than obviously like kings that we are going to mention, who were kept prisoner in Windsor, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch. Mm-hmm. 
Now, moving on to Charles II, after the crown has been reclaimed, in the 1660s, mm-hmm. he modernises Windsor quite a lot. He wants to make it the grandest Baroque uh, state apartments, and he succeeds. <laughs> I bet. He also wants a really royal entrance, so he makes a line of elm trees that runs for two and a half miles up towards the gate. That's nice. Um, so it's quite a grand entrance. That's still sort of there now, and it makes for a really grand entrance for visitors. But were they saplings at the time? So I don't know. Were they, like, really tidy at the time? Who knows? <laughs> He's like, I promise they'll get bigger. The Georges have some stuff going on here as well. George III makes it the centre of court life again, so it sort of drifts off for a while. He wants to make it very neoclassical. He adds a music room, a new dining room, and he appoints James Wyatt as Surveyor General of the Office of Works, and they make it into a very gothic palace. It's a very ambitious plan, but it goes well. This sort of gothic change continues into the reign of George the Fourth. So we're now into the 1820s. Wow, this really is a, a whistle-stop tour of uh, kings and queens, George. Well, we've got to save a lot of time for really, really interesting... The ghosts and skeletons. ...stories. Excellent. I am so excited for these. During these adaptions and during these renovations, they want to make it as grand as possible, as I've said... They want to make it really imposing, so they raise the height of the round tower, which is basically the original Motten Bailey. You know, I said there's a tower on the top of a hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They raise the height of that tower just to make it higher. <laughs> and they also add a load of towers and battlements, and they add a Waterloo chamber, obviously, in memory of Napoleon's defeat and also do a load of stuff to St George's Hall. At this point, I think it'd be a good time to say there are so many towers. I don't know how to explain it, really. We can't possibly go through them all. But let me just read you some of them. We've got on the west side, there's a Curfew Tower, a Salisbury Tower. Then as we get onto the south side, there's a Henry III Tower. There's an Edward III Tower. There's a George IV Gateway, a Henry the eighth gateway as you can see they all clearly really wanted their names in there on the northern side there's a norman gateway there's a winchester tower there's so many they're just they're all over the place so this really is massive when we say this is one of the biggest castles we've looked at it really is Moving on to Victoria. Yes. She creates a new private chapel, which is going to pop up in Ghosts and Skeletons. Excellent. And there's also loads of changes still happening. This is one of those stories that we can take right up to the present day. Harry and Meghan got married there. So this is one of those castles that is still absolutely at the centre. So it has been a central castle of royals not of just nobilities it's been a central castle for the royals for a thousand years now particularly interesting i thought is it's not recently that it's become a site for visitors and a tourist attraction people have been visiting since elizabeth first's reign amazing um george the first and george the second you probably noticed when we talked about the georges that they were missing we moved straight to george the third They're at Kensington and Hampton Courtmore. So during that period, it becomes a place where the public visit quite a lot. The first guidebook is made in 1742. Oh, cool. And in 1825, there's an official visitor's entrance made. Victoria actually introduces ticketing 
and she brings in tour staff so before then it's just sort of like the pre-existing staff that show people around but she actually introduced tour guides to the to the palace but those poor people who worked there before who were like got so much to do and i'm gonna have to show these people around i know that we actually had jobs to do <laughs> also after the railway is invented, that's in 1858 roughly, we then start seeing 39,000 visitors a year. So it's quite it's quite intense. So that is pretty much a whistle-stop tour of all the kings and queens and what they've added to the castle, very, mm-hmm. very loosely so. Got quite a few stories for you in Ghosts and Skeletons though. So, Ghosts and Skeletons, the amazing thing yeah. about... This castle, palace as it becomes, is that it's not like some of the other castles where they might be important at certain points in history and then sort of fizzle out and then come back up again. This is basically a crucial castle for the last 1,000 years. Mm-hmm. We'll start with Edward III. Yeah. Lots of medieval kings have an obsession with Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Who wouldn't? They want to prove it as a sign that they sort of are ordained by God. Henry VII, because that sort of myth originates in Wales, he claims that he's restoring the monarchy to the natural lineage because he's descended from Welsh princes. It's very interesting to watch. Now, Edward III creates the Knights of the Garter, which we've discussed before. Yeah. It becomes the most prestigious award you can get, even though it doesn't really give you much. Yeah. The chapel, St George's, that he started building, was made as the centre of the Order of the Garter. So basically... Oh, really? ...can be seen as a representation of the centre of English chivalry. That's really cool. So it was the centre of, really, where the Order of the Garter was. Edward III made it as his central residence that he basically saw Windsor Castle as Camelot and he made his round table there. The, the, the Order of the Garter and the Knights of the Order of the Garter became the Knights of the Round Table, and it was so um, symbolic. Every year, on a Monday afternoon in mid-June, they would have a magnificent, massive procession of all the members and retainers of the Order of the Garter, and it would go from St George's Hall to the chapel. If there were any new Knights of the Garter being made, it would happen in a morning session, in a morning service in the castle's throne room, and... Yeah, it was like the central part of chivalry in England. It's still a thing that happens now. That's so cool. He also made a solemn oath at Windsor Castle that he was going to follow in Arthur's footsteps and create the Knights of the Round Table again, basically. Um, And that is how the garter sort of came about. This is in 1348. So the Knights of the Garter was really like a second attempt of the round table. He actually has a round house created for the round table to go in. <laughs> this is getting a little bit like they went quite far with this metaphor. It's a bit yeah. obsessive, yeah. <laughs> with the symbolism. I thought that was less ghosts and skeletonsy and a bit more gossipy, just fascinating that I thought was a story we have to get in there. More down the ghosts and skeletons line, James I of Scotland was captured in 1405 and held in one of the towers for 11 years. Oh really? Nicely. In a very typical, we're gonna capture you and then let you live a really nice, lavish lifestyle um, and just pay for it. Particularly part of the ghost section rather than the skeleton section, Prince Albert died there. Aww. So he was ill for quite a while, but 1861 he died and 
Victoria was known as the Widow of Windsor and kept the castle in a state of mourning for years after his death. Yeah, well, that's why she wore black. Mm. She wore black until she died, didn't she? After, because she loved him so much. Yeah. I heard that she had the staff take fresh hot water to his room every day sort of for bathing and stuff as if he was still there. It's really sad. It's a really sad story. And also she blamed her eldest son for it because Albert had gone to reprimand him for, I want to say, bad behaviour. And they'd gone for a walk in the rain and then he'd gotten ill from that and he was reprimanding his son and so she never really forgave him no we've just brought the conversation down it's so sad let's have a have a different story more positive news yeah all 20 christmases that victoria and albert were together for they spent them at windsor oh we've got a lot more information about christmas and windsor coming yeah although little spoiler alert that is the theme for this month given that we're in december now it's going to be castles and Christmas. So given that most of our traditions we get in England around Christmas time come from Victoria and Albert, I thought I would save all of that and we'll put that in that episode. Debunking lots of myths, though. There's some stuff uh, relating to Albert. Ooh, looking forward to that. Going back to sort of ghosts and skeletons, I mentioned that Victoria founded a private chapel at the palace that was accidentally set fire to in 1992. Oops. They think it was a faulty spotlight that set light to a curtain and everything went up very, very fast. It destroyed the ceiling of St George's Hall, which Edward III built. Um, it destroyed the grand reception room, the gutting of the chapel, the state dining room, the crimson dining room. It was not, it was not good. <laughs> the Duke of Edinburgh chaired the restoration committee and they actually got it done under budget and ahead of schedule when does that ever happen in a building project maybe when the person chairing it is the the duke of edinburgh yeah things get done when it's the duke of edinburgh asking you to do it doesn't it um anyway guess how long if it comes in under budget and ahead of schedule guess how long and how much it cost I think it was probably still rather expensive. Was it Was it less than Blenheim? Yeah. <laughs> so it took five years and it was under budget in the sense that it was less than 50 million. I mean, to be fair, though, that's, you know, the amount of history that it had been destroyed and that they've managed to to rebuild it. And you prob- there's probably quite a lot of con- like continuity stuff you've got to do. They were very lucky, actually, because a lot of the stuff that they wouldn't have really been able to replace, like a lot of the history was not damaged. They have some of the finest examples of first editions. So the Royal Library is at Windsor Castle and they managed, thankfully, a lot of it was kept. I think two paintings in total got destroyed. Oh, amazing. But um, most of them were able to be gotten out or were actually already not there Mm. in their normal places because they were being restored. So quite lucky with that. 225 firemen from seven different counties had to go and help put it out. It took 15 hours. So it was quite a quite a big fire. Um, wow. So thankfully that's okay and it's all been restored now, which is great. Speaking of restoring things to their correct models and to look how they were traditionally meant to look, Queen Mary consort to George V. Queen Mary's doll's house is also at Windsor Castle. I don't know if you've heard of this. Yeah, I have heard of this, but I've not seen it, I don't think. It's the largest ever doll's house in the world and it is an exact replica of the edwardian residence that's pretty cool and bougie it's got running water 
working lifts and electric lights. Which had to be updated when, you know, lighting systems changed. They rewired it all. Absolutely massive. And it's been on display in Windsor Castle for about 90 years now because, as I say, the tourism was big for a long time. That's amazing. I found this really funny because I was watching a load of videos in preparation for this episode about the restoration of the doll's house, but it's not that it shouldn't be, but it is taken as seriously as the restoration of a castle in itself. And they are taking out room by room every single item. We're talking tiny chairs, but we're also talking tiny cups and tiny books teeny tiny things taking every single thing out picturing every single thing assessing if it's in good condition dusting it putting it back into the exact place to go into the next one and then they have to have teeny tiny light bulbs and an electrician has to come around and change the teeny tiny light bulbs in it's so funny it's really sweet that's amazing to World War One because the stories for this castle go a lot later than the stories we've looked at before. This one is particularly ghosts and skeletonsy, actually. When World War One broke out, obviously our royal family has heavy German links. It was known at the time as the Saxe-Coburg-Gotha family. They wanted to play this down, and on the 17th of July, 1917, they adopted a new name as a family. Mm-hmm. And what do we know them as now? The Windsors. And that is after Windsor Castle, because it was their home and their favourite castle. So I think that's quite a claim to fame, isn't it? Yeah. The royal family loved this castle so much, they changed their surname. So, yes, King Edward VIII made his famous abdication speech there. So that's the subject of the king's speech. If you've seen that film, you know, the guy who isn't meant to be king and stutters loads. Interestingly, that is our current Queen Elizabeth II's dad. So when her uncle abdicated and her dad came to the throne, that film is all really set around Windsor Castle because Elizabeth II's uncle abdicates at Windsor Castle. I love that film. I thought it was great. His wife, the woman he basically leaves the crown for, Wallace, yeah. she is made Duchess of Windsor, and they are both buried there, which I think is quite nice. During the Second World War, it survived all the bombings, thankfully. The art was removed and put into air raid shelters, and I can't quite believe this, but this is what is on the official website for Windsor Castle. Apparently, a lot of the key crown jewels, including the Black Prince's ruby, was buried in in the castle grounds in a biscuit tin during the Second World War. No, that's insane. Is it still buried? Can we have a treasure hunt? No, I assume they dug it up again. <laughs> I assume it's now in the Tower of London. Can you imagine? So if you're sorry, I'm just going to bury this, like, this amazing, old, ancient jewel of one of the greatest warriors, princes, in our history. I'm just going to put it in the McVitie's. What would have been even funnier is if they forgot where they buried it. That would be slightly amusing. Still there somewhere. <laughs> I just, I like the idea, like, would you have a biscuit tin lying around or do you then have to eat your way through a selection box? <laughs> Quick, eat the biscuits. We need to put the crown jewels in it. I'll take that challenge. Elizabeth II and her sister, Princess Margaret, actually stayed at Windsor during the... 
Second World War. In fact, actually, it seems as though most of the royal family did, but because they wanted it to seem as though the royal family were in the heart of London, you know, facing the Germans, they made it look like they were at Buckingham Palace. So every morning they were taken to Buckingham Palace and every evening they were taken to Windsor so that no one could raid or bomb the castle overnight. That's pretty impressive. It's quite a lot of um, dedication to boosting morale. Because of bombings and things, all of the chandeliers, for example, in the princess's bedrooms were lowered to floor heights so that if the castle shook because of a bomb, nothing would break and they wouldn't get hurt and stuff. So a lot of adjustments had to be made. It was readied very quickly for war. That is pretty much all we have for Ghosts and Skeletons this week, but I think that's quite a decent amount. <laughs> I, think, I think you've got quite a, quite a good lot of Ghosts and Skeletons there, Georgia. So does that mean we're moving on to influence? Moving on to influence and importance, um, some really key things that I think have already come up, but we're just going to reiterate. Mm-hmm. The castle is obviously a key part of William the Conqueror's plan to subjugate Saxon Britain. It is one of the castles put around London to make sure he doesn't lose London. Mm-hmm. That's the first important thing. Yeah. Second important thing is the Order of the Garter. So obviously, as we mentioned, it's also the centre point of the Order of the Garter, which is a massive deal, and all of Edward III's plans that go alongside that. It's also the Chapel of St George, whilst we're talking about that, um, is basically one of the best collegiate foundations we've ever seen and it was probably the one that inspired most other collegiate foundations so that's chapels dedicated to specific colleges as we said it was originally created following the order of the garter foundation so it was built in 1348 by edward iii following the foundation of order of the garter so that was what that was for Um, It was really important in the First Barons' War, as we've mentioned. It was one of two castles in the southeast to survive. Which is incredible, really. Really incredible. I mean, it was that and Dover. Dover's pretty impressive as well. Dover's a pretty impregnable castle. Yeah, I mean, it has to be because it's on the channel. So, key residences, I think, as we've pointed out, loads of kings and queens. This was not just somewhere they visited or somewhere they gave to their favourite sister or brother or something this was the the one of the key places i mean you've got this one you've got buckingham obviously we've got the tower of london but but buckingham palace wasn't around until so arguably this is going to be one of the most important that we've looked at yeah and um it is actually the largest inhabited castle in the world wow it's also the oldest castle that's occupied in europe really wow the royal family still go and stay there every April to June. Nice. I'd live there permanently. Sounds great. And it's also the only residence to have made the transition from castle to palace. Most are either built as a palace or built as a castle. It's the only one that's ever changed. This is sounding like it might be the most impressive castle we've done and possibly will ever do. I mean, we've got, we haven't done things like the Tower of London yet or Dover, but it's definitely... Wow, that's true. So obviously it's super important in terms of the fact that we've got the kings and queens staying there. And it's been important for traditions. It's been important for churches, really, because we've had the founding of St. George's. It's been important for certain wars, like the Barons War, the Civil War. It's also important for the First and Second World War. It's also super important and influential for the arts, because, as I said, it's the home to the Royal Library, so it still holds all of the key books for the 
for the monarchs that they have. That's amazing. It also has a really impressive collection of drawings by people like Michelangelo, Dürer and Da Vinci. That's amazing. I'd love to see those. We should go, Georgia. Mm, And it's also got the Royal Photograph Collection, the Royal Archives, the print room. Yeah, I mean, it's just important in literally every sense. As I mentioned, 10 monarchs are buried in the chapel there. So clearly it was very influential. I think it's definitely the most influential castle we've we've discussed so far. I think besides the Tower of London, which you obviously know has been used by basically all monarchs, I think I'd assumed any castles that were big now were probably massively changed by sort of from Victoria onwards and probably weren't very important in medieval times. So it's crazy to know that this one, I mean, most of the renovations and builds were done by, I mean, Henry III did a lot, Edward III did a lot, and then Edward IV did some stuff. But, I mean, there's been tweaks throughout, but... This is a sustained royal residence. Things like the abdication and Victoria and Albert spent every Christmas there. This is like major, major history now. Yeah. So... There's not much more to discuss. If you disagree with us, if you can think of reasons why it wouldn't be the most important castle we have looked at so far, please do let us know. You can find us on all social media at Podcastles. You can email us at podcastlespodcast at gmail.com. And you can also go to our blog, which is podcastles.co.uk. If people want to at you directly, Georgia, how can they do that? George's on there. Great. I'm at Nikita Bethany. And of course, we will put a load of this information up on the blog. I'm gonna go and put a picture up of the layout of the castle as well because I just find it fascinating how many towers there are. <laughs> All the towers. Well, I guess that's another another week done, Georgia. I guess that's a wrap, isn't it? Thanks for listening, everybody. And as always, if you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out. And I guess, Georgia, that's just bye for now. Yep, we will see you next time for another episode. But for now, it is goodbye. See you later.